When we looked at God calling Gideon to his calling, he saw himself as the least, the most least significant of anybody anywhere on all planet Earth. And yet the angel of the Lord, probably Jesus in the Old Testament, says to him in, in his incarnate, uh, pre-incarnate state, appeared to him and said, as in a Christophany, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. And so we talked about how we need to see ourselves the way the Lord sees us, not from our past failures or our future fears, but simply faith for today, how the Lord sees us and what he's calling us to do. And it's always just the next thing. It's just the next thing, the next step of faith. That's what he sees, and that's what he calls us to do. And we saw that with Gideon. So he was called to tear down his dad's altar to Baal, and that's part of the curse on the land, why the Midianites had overrun them. They're in hiding. They're, they're, they're being threatened with extermination as the people, as a covenant, people of covenant, the Israelites, in their land. The Midianites had filled the land in an innumerable, an innumerable force, and God says to Gideon, you're going to deliver them. He says, I'll be with you, and you will defeat them as one man. So we talked about that, an army of one. When one person, one woman, one man truly belongs to the Lord, and they're spirit-filled and spirit-led, they can change the whole destiny of a nation. And that's what the story of Gideon teaches us. So Gideon tore down his father's altar, inspired his dad, inspired the neighbors. And then God gave him the sign of the fleece with the, the dry fleece, the wet ground, the wet, the wet fleece, the dry ground. So God gave him an original sign when he called them. Then he gave him two more signs with the opposite things with the fleece being wet or dry. And that's where we ended off last week when we went verse by verse through chapter 6. So tonight we're going to do chapter 7 and 8 and complete our study on the life of Gideon and see this man's life as he got into action because everything in chapter 6 is the calling and the prelude but chapter 7 and chapter 8 is the great adventure and then the the postscript on the whole story of his life chapter 7 verse 1 then Jerubbabel that is Gideon he got a name change like we were talking about on Saturday and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad so the camp of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley and the Lord said to Gideon the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there." Then it will be that those of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps on the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lap, putting their hand to their mouth, were, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by 300 men who laughed, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took the provisions and their trumpets in their hands. And he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of the Midian was below him in the valley. Remember the Midianites were like 140,000. A massive, massive military force coming from what is now modern Jordan and Syria and just enveloping the entire land of modern Israel. They were everywhere, innumerable. And it was in this background that God tells Gideon, 32,000 is way too many people. 10,000 is too many people. 300, he gave him even numbers. 300 is what you're going to work with. Some of you, many of you are familiar with this story. It's a fairly well-known story. And as I was thinking about this story 
in the last few weeks preparing for it and looking at it, and even this week, something that's made me think about this on this story is we often think about the 300, like, wow, these amazing 300, but what I got to thinking about is, how about the 9,700? Not, not the 22,000 who just left. The 22,000, yeah, there's all those people that are afraid. And just, you know, they can go. But what has me thinking from this study in this text tonight is the 9,700. Because these people, they were willing. The first cut, you know, like when, you, when Han used to do acting, we take her up to LA on these auditions. You, you, get, you go to an audition and you, you know, do this audition, and then um, if they like you, they, they, you, they, you get a call back. It's called a call back. So you go back in, they see you again, they get another look at you. And if they really like you, then you make the final five and you're called a veil. But like in acting, only one person gets it. But it's a, it's a process. The millennials, the younger people in this church know that when you're trying to get a job, and there's only one job, there's X amount of people apply, now online more than ever. So you got to have your resume together. you got to be really good at putting your resume together. Because you can't go sell yourself in person. you got to submit it. And you, you submit it, and then it goes through a process, and then you get another look, and then you make this cut, and then you get down to it. Well, my son Luke got the job with Hyundai. He was 23 at the time, and he's up against a 37-year-old career person in the car industry. And Luke just nailed it. All, all of his, you know, so you had the phone, then you had the Zoom, whatever, and then you had the in-person. This was before COVID, and he, and he got the job. They took a big risk. They hired a 23-year-old over someone who had done the same thing for 15 years with another car dealership, but he got the job, and he still has the job. It got down to two, and he got the job, and it was amazing. We were so proud of him and how he, but he carried himself really well. Hannah never got an acting gig, but she was called back many times, and she was availed a couple times. You're so close to that KFC commercial, you can just see it, you know, but it didn't happen. But I tell people what Hannah learned from going on 70 auditions over a three-year period is she learned how to do a job interview. She learned how to interview for the job and not get the job. And she's going to be here teaching our Christmas event. And when you see Hannah carry herself, we used to say Hannah could have dinner with uh, Barack Obama. She could have dinner with Donald Trump. And she could have dinner with both of them at the same table. She learned how to carry herself in any given situation. So for me, I've always valued the almost thing. Like in sports, I always tell you you never want to be runner-up. I was runner-up U.S. champ. I was runner-up world junior champ. And then I won the five masters. You learn a lot from just not quite getting it. When you get deep in the process, it's not a failure. If you're runner up, that means you're really close to being the champion. And sometimes your best is just runner up. Someone's better than you. Someone's a better fit for the job. Someone's a better surfer. Someone's a better quarterback. It's okay to be the backup quarterback. And I think for us, especially as Americans, we think you have to win. You have to be number one, right? Like looking out for number one. Sig Ziglar's book, right? Looking out for number one. Ichiban. When I went to Japan 30, 40 years ago, I got a teacher with the one Japanese symbol I knew, number one, because you got to be number one. But what I see in this story is there are 9,700 people who were not afraid, and they were willing to charge head-on into a out army of 140,000 with superior numbers. And we often miss them in the story because they're not the 300 that made the cut. And I just want to draw attention to him because a lot of you know what it's like to be available and to go for it and not get the job, to not get the calling, to not get the raise, to not get the promotion, to not 
to not get married because it didn't go that way that you thought it might go. To not be able to have a child when you want to have a child and the people that don't want children seem to have six or ten of them. Listen, it's okay when you are totally all in and it doesn't go your way and you're not one of the 300 men of Gideon. David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. But what did God say? No, you're not going to build a temple. Solomon's going to build a temple. But it's good that you're willing to build a temple. And I think it's pretty cool because in Deborah's song back in chapter 5, she said, when the people willingly offer themselves. And what did 9,700 men do right here in this story? They willingly offered themselves to go against superior numbers of a, like 15 to, you know, 10 to 1 or 8 to 1, whatever. We often look at these men in this story as they're the guys who drank water like a dog and got cut. And I really believe in looking at the study this time in my life, it just wasn't their calling. It just wasn't for them. And as you get older, you realize there's some things that you were available for, you wanted to do, and it just, it just wasn't for you. And that's okay. I, was, I have a book about Navy SEALs and the BUDS program and what they do, and they got that value ring when you quit the training as a Navy SEAL. You just go like, I can't take it. Because not everyone can be a Navy SEAL. Like very, very few can be a Navy SEAL. It is really, really hard to be a Navy SEAL. But there's some, there are, and if you look at the last 20 years of American forces and the global conflicts we've had and the war on terror and these different places we've been, how many great acts of bravery took place by men and women who were not Navy SEALs or pararescue. World War II, the heroes were citizen soldiers. People from Kansas, Pennsylvania, Chicago, men and women like my Aunt Elise, who for four years in the European theater put men back together again who were broken, serving with the Red Cross. It's okay, WG, to be one of the 9,700 and not be one of the 300 called to be the elite force for the mission of that night. So don't let that disappoint you because you were willing to go to war. You were willing to go to battle and you weren't afraid. In the book of Acts, the very first chapter tells us of when they went to replace Judas of the 12 apostles. And another one of those people we forget about is when they cast lots to replace Judas because they wanted 12 We know Matthias was the 12th, and he replaced Judas. But there was another man there that everyone thought highly of, that the apostles thought highly of, that the women there thought highly of, and his name was Justice. And they cast a lot, and a lot belonged to the Lord. And so Judas goes his way, and Peter and John and Andrew, and they're all there, and they cast a lot. And the lot says it's Matthias. And you maybe thought it's like, yes, like that, right? And maybe Justice is like, wow. The Lord, the Lord rejected me. Could you see how you'd think that? If there's only one spot and there's two candidates, someone is not going to get it. And in that case, it was the Holy Spirit leading them by the lot. Can you imagine when one of the 11 apostles and you do that and you've all been praying and you've been fasting and doing all this stuff and you cast that lot and, and you look at Matthias like, well, it's Matthias. And I was like, yeah, dude, bro, you got it. You're the starting quarterback. You know, you got, you got the call. 
And then everyone's like, dude, it's all right, justice. God's got something for you. You, you ever been in that situation where you're justice? Barsabas, that's also his name. It's okay. You know, you never read about Matthias again in the New Testament, ever again, except when they say collectively the apostles. But you do read about justice. Because when they wrote the letter in Acts 15 and delivered it to the churches that the gospel's for everyone, not just Jews, who went out with that letter? Justice. He was part of that team that went out on the second journey with the letter. So I just got to pause and take a different look at these 9,700 individuals who were not afraid and were willing to risk their lives, as Deborah said in her song two chapters before. Just a reminder to us, it doesn't always go our way. In fact, many times it doesn't, like Jeff was saying earlier. And that's okay. What matters is that you're willing and you're trusting in the Lord and you're not going to double clutch and think, wow, if I just drank the water like those guys did, or like Justice a week after Matthias is there with the 12 and the only apostles only meeting, and Justice is out there with everyone else going like, wow, like, Lord, really? Why? Like, I was right there. And like, it's okay. It's okay. Because a lot belongs to the Lord. And what did God say to Gideon? I'm going to test him there for you. And this one shall not go with you, and this one shall go with you. And by the way, who wants to go, who wants to be one of the 300 if God hasn't called you to be one of the 300? Like, if you're not called to be a Navy SEAL, who wants to be a Navy SEAL? Like, do you really want to go into, like, Baghdad and do some special ops thing? If you're not called by God to be a Navy SEAL, would you really want to be the Navy SEAL? You got two doctors. One's a brain surgeon, one's a general practitioner. Do you want to be the brain surgeon if you're called to be a general practitioner so you can go with Doctors Without Borders and do all these things around the world? Or do you want to be the person at UCI doing brain surgery? You wouldn't want to be that person unless you're called to be that person. And that's where we just realize that God looks at the heart and he has a unique plan for everybody and a special mission. God's not throwing away 9,700 men here who willingly offer themselves according to Deborah's song. He is simply selecting 300 to a more elite situation for the task at hand that he's called them to. And we want to keep that in mind when we feel like we were all in and the Lord said no. Verse 9. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, so the same night, we just have to stop there. We saw in chapter 6 that everything happened in one day. Remember with Gideon, like the angel of the Lord, then tear down your father's altar, or the morning comes, or the people want to kill him in the village. It happened in one day. And here again, the testing of the men, it says that night. So again, another profound day in his life. It happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I've delivered them into your, your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp of Purah, with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Now the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come there with a man, and when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I've had a dream. And to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled in the camp of the Midian, 
and it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent collapsed. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of his dream and his interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. And then he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. And when I blow the trumpet, and I all who are with me, then you shall blow the trumpet, trumpets on every side of the whole camp, and say, the sword of the Lord, end of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp in the beginning of the middle of the watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and trumpets in their rights for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord, end of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp. And the whole army ran and cried and fled. When the three hundred blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Mahalah by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, all Manasseh, and pursued the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Bara in the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Bara in Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb by the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. So, Gideon's got his 300 men, and they're going for it, and they've got a good plan. 100, 100, 100, surrounding the Midianite camps, right on the, the night watch change when people are vulnerable. They time the attack perfectly. But you notice, with 140,000 they're against, they just shouted the sword of the Lord and Gideon, but they had a trumpet and a pitcher, or a you know, torch. The battle truly is the Lord's. The battle truly, truly is the Lord's. And no matter what forces of humanity amass against him and his name and his truth, no matter what forces of humanity amass against his people, his church, it's his battle. And he's got it. Time and time again in the Bible, we're told that the Lord catches the wise in their own craftiness. And some men trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of our God. And this is very sobering to me. It's a restraint against evil in our life because you realize if God wants to let you go nuts, he'll let you go nuts. Isn't that sobering? Like, the worst thing that can ever happen is God giving you over to your lust. That's the worst thing ever. Yeah. Or not chastening you. That's equally as bad. When God says it's time just to do what he's going to do, he makes people become insane. And he makes them do things that make no sense whatsoever because he catches the wise and own craftiness. Now, we know that the dark side cannibalizes itself anyways. We've watched in the last 10 years how people who are fighting God collectively then turn on each other and devour one another. Cancel culture doesn't just cancel people who are for God. It cancels their own people. 
Like we've seen that in the last couple of years. They've, they just devour their own. So we should never fret in our timeline, in our children's children's timeline when we're off this planet. They don't need to fret either because all the powerful forces of evil, the devil, the spiritual realm of demons, all these things, when the Lord wants to let the enemies of the church go nuts, he lets them go nuts. So people might be smart enough to figure out how to build the internet. They might be smart enough to how to control all public uh, communication through Twitter or Facebook or these things. And they might actually own it. In fact, they're called masters of the universe. But in the end, if God wants to get them over to being nuts, he's going to give them over to being nuts. And they'll go nuts. And they leave it all behind anyways. So when you see, well, David in Psalm 2 said it best. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing against the Lord and his anointed? They should just bow the knee and pay homage to the son while they can, S-O-N son, before they step into eternity and have to bow the knee anyways. Why, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? That is what the enemies of the gospel are doing in 2021. It's what they did in A.D. 31, A.D. 1031, A.D. 1531. It's what they do in every generation. They gather together and they plot vain things against the Lord and his anointed Christ and against his bride, the church. There's nothing happening in our timeline that hasn't happened before us and won't happen after us. The kingdoms are in conflict until Christ comes. So we can't be unsettled because evil people have great power, masters of the universe, and they amass their and. and collaborate together to silence the gospel, silence truth, silence the word of God, suppress the church, and keep us from existing. What folly! What just absolute folly! The church will be strong, the church will prevail, the church will be doing what it's called to do until Jesus Christ sounds that trumpet of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So don't let this stuff move you. They come and go. When God says, blow a trumpet, light a torch, and watch me turn these people against each other, they didn't do anything. They just watched. It's like, what's going on down there? Dude, Jacob, they're like killing each other. Look at them. Look at them. Look at Amalekites, Midianites. That's what God does. The moment he just pulls back or gives people over, this is what happens in Midianites and Amalekites. Do not be moved by evil. The battle is the Lord's. And it's to God's glory. If the church was meant to physically and forcibly cast off all the yokes that are against us in 2021, we might get the glory. And it'll all be on us. It's just better to pray, speak truth, Stand, because the Bible never tells us. You know, remember we've talked about this. What the Bible tells the church to do is stand. That's we're called to stand. Having done all, stand. Having done all, stand. Like the guy in Tiananmen Square 25 years ago when he's standing there in front of the tank. That image, we never knew who it was, right? Isn't that amazing? He stood. That guy stood up to the Communist Chinese Party, an army of one. Maybe he was a believer. Maybe he wasn't. But that dude stood in front of a tank and Mao Zedong and his whole crew. We're just called to stand. He didn't come out with another tank. You just stand. And it's going to go the way it's going to go. Ours is the kingdom. Ours is the power. 
Ours is the glory. Ours is eternal. Ours is all the promises. Theirs is temporal, and it's all no promises other than wrath and judgment. That's why we're told to pray for our enemies and to forgive our enemies and to love our enemies. And you ladies that went to the movie last night, you saw that powerfully in the movie. We're called to serve a meal to our enemies who kill our family. And that is not done naturally, but supernaturally. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of men. So we light the flame, we sound the trumpet, and we let God fight our battles. Chapter 8. Now the men of Ephraim said to him, Why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight with Midianites? And they reprimanded him sharply. So he said to them, What have I done now in comparison to you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vineyard of Abazur? That's uh, the family that he's from, Gideon's family. And God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. And what was I able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. We'll stop here because this kind of sets up the rest of the story. So let's go back to the 9,700 men and all the other men. So again, the 300 had the torches and they had the trumpet. But once the battle was on, we saw at the back end of last chapter that men gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. There was a time for the 9,700 men to get back to the battle and pursue the Midianites that were fleeing across the Jordan River. They were just not part of the first wave, the special forces, kind of like in war, right? The special forces go in first, and then the larger groups come in. They were not called to be part of the first, but they were definitely availed for the second. When do you need 9,700 men who aren't afraid to die? when you're chasing the Midianites out of your promised land. So here you go. There they are in the back end of chapter 7. And now here in chapter 8, the Ephraimites come down. You know, everyone loves a winner. We'll see that in this chapter. Everyone loves a winner and no one likes a loser in the human experience. And men are prideful. Humans are prideful. And we want to be recognized, and we want the glory. And Gideon, you got to appreciate how he's like, there's this whole conflict. Like, it's not enough you got to fight the Midianites, 140,000 with 300 men. Now you got to fight your fellow Israelites who are upset they don't, that they see you getting glory, and they think they want in on that glory. But if you don't care about the glory, then you don't care who gets the credit. This is the woman God uses. This is the man that God uses. When we're not concerned with who gets the credit, then we're free totally to serve the Lord. But if you want to get the credit, then that's a problem. And give Gideon a lot of credit here. He didn't have to get the credit. Gideon just pulled off one of the greatest military triumphs in the entire human race. When in human history do 300 men defeat 140,000? But he was told by the Lord, no, you can't do it with 10 because you'll still brag about it. On the bragometer, you're still got you're still you're still in the game. But when 300 go and you don't even pull out a sword, it's my glory. So what's it to Gideon? The Lord gave him the victory. So why is he gonna be like, hey, we did this, you guys better just get in line. I'm the new king around here. He's like, Well, who am I compared to you? I just did this, you get to do that. You've got the princes. Look, you got their heads in a bag. It's war. War's brutal, right? He's like, we didn't do anything. We just, I, just, I just sound a trumpet and held a torch. Look at you guys. Oh, you got these guys. You got to hack those guys. And like, oh, yeah, I guess you look at it that way. It's like Cowboys in the Wild West. You know, he's like, 
Well, I guess so. Years ago, it had a very profound effect on me when Brian Broderson said this. And I've never forgotten it because it really helped me understand human behavior because Brian always has a lot of wisdom. And he said, we were in a meeting and someone always said, you know, ideas are like children. We like ours the best. I was like, hmm. And those parents know you do like yours the best. When there's four kids playing in McDonald's playground and they get in a fight, you're cheering for yours, not theirs. But Broderson said, ideas are like children. We like ours the best. And he basically was telling me, great leadership is getting someone to think your idea is their idea because they'll like it best. And if that idea is the right idea and they're more inclined to be on board with the idea, like in a board of directors or something, then let it help it frame it where it becomes their idea. Wives, you all know this one, right? If it's your idea, your husband's like, well, I don't know about that, you know, just not. But if suddenly you kind of frame it and move it along, and suddenly, like, you've, you've given him, like, ten hints, and then he's like, hey, I got an idea. And he says, well, this is my idea. You're like, honey, what's your idea? Here's my idea. And then you go, that's a great idea. Let's do that. That's been known to work in the human experience because ideas are like children we like ours the best and in this situation you see how smart Gideon is because this could he's in the middle of battle they're hungry and these are like hey you know what you're doing like we're all one tribe here and you're taking all the glory for stuff what glory you guys did it all look you know like he just framed it where they got the glory he didn't have to get the glory You and I do not have to get the glory. In fact, we don't want the glory. Because we often say the moment you get applause from men, you lose applause in heaven, right? Jesus actually said that. We don't have to get the glory. Because the glory belongs to the Lord. And we don't want to get his glory. That's why Paul right in the Corinthians says, let him who glory, don't glory in Paul or Paulus or Peter, glory this, let him who glories glory in this, that he knows the Lord. The Lord gets the glory. So as long as the Lord, as long as our hearts move toward the Lord getting the glory, we don't have to get the glory. And we're free to let someone else get the glory. Like, well, if someone else wants to take glory for what the Lord gave them, that's between them and the Lord. But, but for you and I, we can control whether or not we feel like we have to get props and we need to be recognized. We need, no, we don't. If God gave it, which he gives us everything we have anyways, just run with it and let God have the glory. And if men want to connive and women want to strive over who did this and who got the sale for these, this furniture and they did this and they sold that car and like, well, really, that was my customer. You know, it's like, let God be your advocate. Let God be your defense. He can do a better job, like Pastor Chuck would say all the time. God can do a better job of defending you than you. So let him defend you. And if you got shortchanged because someone stole your commission or whatever, I mean, you might need to speak up. Maybe not, though. Like, the Lord knows. God knows. God knows. And no good deed will go unknown for all eternity, right? Because what did Jesus say? Even a cup of cold water in his name is going to be rewarded before the throne of God. So if you do a good deed and you get no credit and someone else gets credit for it, what's that to you? 
You've got the credit for all eternity when you stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. Do you want the credit from men who come and go and go the way of all men and like the dust we can, the dust return? Or do you want the credit and the glory coming from God when you stand before his throne when all things are tested by fire before whom we must give an account? We want the glory in the presence of the Lord. So Gideon's like, hey, it's like he scored the touchdown. Like, man, that was our touchdown. That's right. You sprung the block. Man, what a block. That was a key block. You, you know, you just, just, sure, whatever. It's, you guys did it. It's all good. When you don't, when it's God's glory, you don't have to get the glory. And that's what Gideon shows us right there. Verse four. When Gideon came to the Jordan River, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. Then he said to the men of Succoth, please give, these are Israelites, please give us loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they're exhausted. And I'm pursuing Zeba and Zem. Zamuna, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Ziba and Zamuna now in your hand? And should we give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Ziba and Zaluma to, into my hand, I will tear your flesh with thorns in the wilderness with briars. Then he went up from there to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel, these are also Israelites, answered him as the men of Succoth and answered, had answered. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel and said, when I come back in peace, I'm going to tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zamuna were at Kekor and their armies with them, about 15,000 of all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. For 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Then Gideon went up by the road of those who dwell in tents to the east of Nobah and Jogbeha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zaluma fled, he pursued them and he took them, the two kings in Midian, and routed the whole army. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle from the ascent of Harris, and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him. And he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and the elders, 77 men. And then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Ziba and Zaluma, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zamuna now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. And he said to Ziba and Zamuna, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And so they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. And then Gideon said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you'd let them live, I would have not killed you. And then he said to Jether, his firstborn, Gideon says to his son, Rise and kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid, and because he was still a youth. So Zebun Zamuna said, Rise yourself and kill us, for as a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zamuna and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Again, with the book of Judges, we have all this stuff like war. It's just. When Jennifer came home from the movie last night, on, I'm going to say her name wrong, but Serena Wormbrandt. I know it's not correct, but I just got a mind block on it. But her whole family being, because she was Jewish, her whole family being killed by the Nazis and stuff. Jennifer appreciates history, but I live in history. And that's why I quote so much from history to keep it relevant to us that we can learn from these things and be inspired by people like this. And in history, we learn that you have to choose sides. There's war. When the Nazis occupy your town in the Netherlands, you have to decide, are you a collaborator with these people? Or are you part of the underground trying to rescue Jews and hiding Christians? 
You have to decide. You have to decide which side you're on. During the Revolutionary War from 1775 as it was building, particularly 1776, and then all the way to like 83, 1783, but particularly in 81 when the whole, after the stalemate for three years in the South, in the Southern colonies, it was such a gnarly war in the South with the British and the Tories and the Continentals and the Partisans. And listen, you could not avoid it. If you lived in Savannah or Charleston or any of these places at that time, you had to cast your lot with either the British or the Continentals and George Washington and his people. You could not have it both ways. You had to be one or the other. And when the war was finally done, tens of thousands of Tories, those are colonists who aligned themselves with the British, had to get on ships and start their lives all over again in England. There was no future for them in the colonies. They cast their lot with the wrong people. Just like the women in Paris and these other places who slept with the German leaders, the Nazis, they, had, they, they dined, they lived large, they kept their property, they kept all this stuff, their family was saved from the Nazis and this and that. But when the U.S. forces and the French forces, the French underground liberated Paris, those same people had their heads shaved, they're humiliated, and they're driven from the city to live in shame for the rest of their lives. You have to choose sides. Do you realize that? You have to choose us. When the U.S. forces are in Afghanistan, you have to decide, are you with the Taliban and what they stand for, or the United States and what they stand for? And this is really important, because you might be abandoned by the United States government. And if you're abandoned by the United States government, and the Taliban comes to your town and does horrible things to you and puts you in eternity, you want to stand on that day having done all stand. You want to know, in the time when you had to choose, you chose according to the conviction of truth and character and the things that God honors, not because it was safe or unsafe. We choose based upon truth and character and the character of God as it applies to our life. And so I would like to thank all of us in this room, when the Nazis came into Holland, that we would have chosen, like Corey Tin Boom and her family, that we would have chosen to risk our lives and everything we knew to save Jewish people, to resist evil like the French underground. I would like to think we would have chosen the right thing because those that chose to stand with Nazi Germany chose evil. And all those pastors that chose to stand with Hitler and all of his people and the great evil they did against humanity, against the European people in the Baltics, in the Ukraine, in Russia... They identified with that evil and they chose the wrong side. So even after World War II was over and they survived World War II and they're able to be policemen instead of Nazi executioners, they had to live with their souls and their conscience. But all those people who suffered and died at their hands and the criminals that did their dirty work for them, like Tim Boom's father, her sister, they died with their character and their faith and their conviction in hand. And we only live once, so really live, and you only die once, so really die. In Jesus' name. These Jews on this side of the Jordan, they're traitors. They are traitors. They're collaborators with the Nazis. They are traitors. These Midianites are the enemies. How dare you help them? How dare you play the game of chess that somehow they're a greater threat to your personal safety, you think, than Gideon and his recent victory? 
How dare you choose the wrong side, the prophets of Baal? When here in Israelite, your brethren brings a great victory, and he's wiped out 130,000 of them, and he's surely going to win. You can't even read the odds on the scoreboard that are, that are on his side. How dare you stand against the Lord, his law, his word, his praise, and everything that's true and honorable and noble. That's what these men did in these two cities in Succoth and Penuel. They were collaborators with evil, and they helped evil. They helped evil kings who oppressed their own people. And how dare those people who call themselves Christian leaders help evil people who oppress his church and his truth? Suppress the gospel. Suppress his word. Suppress his worship. Be careful when you collaborate with darkness for your own safety. It's a bad ending for your soul. And a lot of people have in the last two years. Would we collaborate with the enemies of the gospel? You say, how do you know they're enemies? When they try to silence the gospel and silence the word and silence his praise and silence our existence, how, 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 how much common sense do you need to know when someone is against Christ and all that's good, true, just, noble, praiseworthy? Church of Jesus Christ. And it's mostly not us, WG. It's a greater body of Christ. Succoth and Penuel picked the wrong side, and they could have picked the right side based upon the covenant, the promise, their identity, and everything God had for them. But they chose safety and comfort and fear, and that's how they chose so to get a public whooping, they got off the hook pretty easily just to get a public beating. Because Gideon came back, and he gave them a public spanking like they do in Southeast Asia, like a caning. That's what he did. He gave them a caning, like they give you in Cambodia or Thailand. Whack, 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 public humiliation. And maybe, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and maybe they learned a lesson from it, because to be beaten publicly is humiliating. And maybe they learned a lesson from it, and maybe they're better for it. And some of them lost their lives. They chose the wrong side because they chose safety instead of conviction and truth. What a lesson for us. What a bad ending for them. Tore down the tower. Like those, those newsreels, you see those women getting their heads shaved in Paris. They're out there on YouTube. You can find them. All those harlots, man, they just they shaved their heads and they lost everything they had. They chose the wrong side because instead of choosing according to conviction and character and truth, they chose safety. Fear caused them to make the wrong decisions. It is much better to die in a death camp or be shot down against a wall in a village with your faith and your character and your integrity than capitulate your soul for a pseudo-safety that no man can guarantee you. Make no covenants with evil. Ever. Do not collaborate with evil. That's what these men did, and they got exactly what they deserved. And as for these two kings, well, they got what they deserved. What did Gideon say? If you'd let my family live, I'd let you live. But as a man sows, so shall he reap. You killed my brothers. Son, this is the way the real world works right here. These two men, these evil men that would, would keep us from eating food, take our property, take our assets, take our freedom. These two men, they represent everything evil in this world against us and our calling with God. And in this covenant, they are the enemy and they have to be executed right now. They killed your relatives, your uncles. Dad, I can't do it. And look at by the confession. It's like the king who said, 70 kings, I cut their toes and thumbs, so now it comes to me. And now, these guys say, you know what, as a man is, do it. 
I can't even imagine having to execute someone like this. And this was justice. And Gideon was the sword of the Lord for justice in this situation. And that was the end of these two men. And these crescent ornaments, it represents like success and victory. They're like trophies from people they had conquered and they had killed, like Gideon's family. And Gideon captured them. Now we finish the chapter, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into the earrings from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That's more than 50 pounds of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the purple robes were on the kings of the Midian, and besides the chains that were around their camels' necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephah, a robe, and set it in the city of Oprah, and all Israel played the harlot with it and became a snare to Gideon and his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. So this one season of Gideon's life, he becomes a national hero. He gets his share of the plunder, 50 pounds worth of gold. This ephod, this robe was built uh, like a Hall of Fame statue or something, a reminder of the victory, and somehow became a flashpoint of idolatry. And it's so easy to do that. It's so easy for something like this to become a flashpoint of idolatry. It would seem it had a good intention of the, the victories that the Lord gave, but it became a flashpoint of idolatry. Gideon brought the land 40 years of rest. Man, just know that, like Deborah brought 40 years of rest. He brought 40 years, a whole generation got to have it good because this man responded to the call of God on his life and he did it. He had this like, just this little couple of weeks that were so intense, life-changing, changed the whole nation. And for 40 years, his courage and his faithfulness put the country in a good way. And it's unfortunate that things got bad after he left, but people make their own choices. Even if you stumbled somebody, they still make their own choices. Like for years, I wanted to blame my parents for things that were wrong with me. And then just get to the point where it's like, man, just shut up already. They did what they did, you do what you do. They did what they did as adults and affected you this way. You do what you do as an adult and affect your kids that way. Just stop blaming other people and just do your own thing. Don't, don't blame your problems on Gideon's ephod. He's been in the grave for 10 years. If you got problems, it's your problems. He'll give an account for the ephod, but what you do with that ephod, that's your business. Quit blaming other people for your shortcomings. Verse 29, then Jerubbabal, that is Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Oprah of the Abizrites. So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with Baals, the false gods, and made Baal Beareth their god. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all the enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in accordance with the good that he had done for Israel. So when we summarize Gideon's life, we know this last verse says with the good that he had done for Israel. And like all men and all women, godly men and women, there's still shortcomings in his life. He's almost like a king, obviously. He multiplied wives, all this stuff. And it played out the way it played out. And we'll see that next week with Abimelech. The next, next week gets gnarly. Um, in 
the timeline. But he lived and died a good old age, and he did what he chose to do, like Solomon, but the land had quiet for 40 years, and in accordance with all the good he had done for Israel. God, I really believe in eternity, is going to really focus on all the good that we let him do in our life. And uh, Jesus died for all the bad. Don't test that grace, but praise God for that grace. Amen.